This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're looking this morning at verses 14 through 19. Hear the word of God. Paul writes to Timothy, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We give thanks to the Lord for his holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do want to thank you for these uh, verses that we have read from the scriptures today. And Father, we acknowledge and recognize that they are truth, that they are your truth, and that they have something to say to us now, living in the 21st century. Father, we pray that you will give us hearts and minds to hear, to understand what you're saying. And uh, Father, that uh, together with your spirit, we would apply those things to our lives and grow in grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Timothy, Paul is writing the final letter of his we have in the New Testament. He writes it to one man, to Timothy, his uh, disciple, protege, uh, fellow missionary. Uh, he writes to charge Timothy about his ministry in a particular time and place. We've come to these letters like First and Second Timothy, Titus, the pastoral epistles, and um, in some ways they're a little difficult uh, as we study it as a whole. Pastors love it because it's, it, it talks about ministry, uh, but how does, how does it apply to the church as a whole? Well, it applies in a number of ways. One, in these letters, Paul says a great deal about the church and the organization of the church. There's this First Timothy 3 that has those qualifications for elders and deacons, Titus 1 also. Uh, but even a passage like the one that's before us today uh, is, is applicable to every believer in one way or another, certainly to those who preach and teach in an ordained capacity, but also to every believer who teaches in any capacity, whether it's in Sunday school or VBS or uh, teaching your children, which is something all parents are to do. And certainly every Christian uh, has an interest in knowing what the scriptures expect of those who stand before them and teach 
and preach the Word of God, again, in an ordained or unordained capacity. So as we come to these verses, these are verses that are for the whole church, not just for those who teach. Uh, but Paul does have in mind here particularly uh, those who are involved in teaching and preaching and otherwise making known the, the Word of God. And that could also be in an informal capacity of, of discussing it, teaching someone informally from the Scriptures in terms of sharing the Gospel with them. Well, Paul begins in verse 14 by saying, remind them of these things. Remind who of what things? Well, them could be a reference to Christians generally, uh, but it may also have a more narrow uh, reference back to chapter 2, verse 2, the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It may be those faithful men. He's saying remind those faithful men uh, about these things. In other words, pretty much everything Paul has been saying in, uh, in chapter 2, you could take it all the way back to the beginning of the letter, but uh, to remind them of these things. And he goes on then to talk about some, some things they need to know about, specifically to be reminded of, and we do too. It has to do with those who teach or otherwise handle the Word of God for hope, the benefit of others. Now, Earlier we read in 1 Corinthians, Paul's reference to himself as a, uh, as a steward of the mysteries of God. Uh, he has been given that stewardship, entrusted that ministry by Christ to make known the word of God to others. And it's interesting that Paul says that the assessment of what he did has to wait until judgment day. Paul says, even of himself, I don't know anything against myself, but that really doesn't matter a whole lot either. What matters is Christ's opinion. What matters is what God says about my ministry. So Paul can say to the Corinthians, you know, what you think doesn't make a whole lot of difference to me. Even my own assessment of myself really doesn't carry a whole lot of weight. What matters is what Christ thinks. Well, what he writes to Timothy here is sort of unfolding that a little bit. How are we to assess? Well, among those who teach, they could do so in a good way. They could do so in a bad way. And uh, Paul does provide some assessment here. talks basically about two kind of workers. And good ones, pretty much centered in verse 15, familiar passage, familiar verse, but also bad ones. And what we're going to do, like we tend to do with news, is take the bad first and then go to the good. So Paul writes about two kinds of workers. First, let's look at the bad ones. What is What are some characteristics of a bad uh, worker, bad workman in the Scriptures? Uh, this applies to, to any of us, again, who teach in any capacity ourselves, but also to all of us as Christians generally. First, what is characteristic of a, of a bad worker in the Scripture? Well, one... There's a tendency to, as Paul says here in verse 11, well, I'm sorry, uh, verse 14 rather, to, to quarrel about words, to, to wrangle over words. Some have even translated it to, to split hairs. Um, that may not quite capture what Paul is saying here. Uh, it tends to have to do with... Um, Abstract discussions just about words, um, parsing words, analyzing words, 
never really getting to what it has to do with anything. Now, as I was as I read that and, and, and look at those words, I tend to think about commentaries. Preachers like commentaries and reading what other people have said about the scriptures. Now, there are commentaries and there are commentaries. Uh, some commentaries can get very detailed and technical. Uh, and yet, uh, result in blessing, result in, in growth and knowledge. Some commentaries tend to just be dry discussions of grammar. Now, I love grammar. Gram- you know, I had an test professor who said a good knowledge of Greek grammar can bless your soul. And it can, uh, but just almost seems to be an end in itself. Or discussion of sources, especially from higher critical or liberal scholars, which I don't tend to read a whole lot of. Uh, but, you know, how did this come together? How did this passage, what, what sources was it drawn from? And all that kind of thing that never really seems to get beyond that to, to life. Well, that could be the kind of thing that, that Paul has in mind here, just, just quarreling about words uh, among themselves. Now, notice it, it results in a couple of things. Um, one, he says that it does no good. Do your discussions do good? Do they result in good? Do they result in blessing? Do they result in godliness? Or is it just to discuss words for the sake of intellectual discussion? Notice he goes, he goes on to say, not only does it not do good, negatively, it only ruins the hearers. It only ruins the hearers. Um, how does it ruin the hearers? Because it tends to make them think about discussing things without developing the habit of application, without developing the habit of saying, well, what difference does this discussion make? Now, this isn't to say we can't engage in in deep philosophical or linguistic or theological discussion about things. Not at all. But if that's all it is, then it's not doing good and it can actually lead to ruin us because we just become theoretical. We become abstract. Our thinking is detached from our living, which, by the way, you never find in Paul. Paul can talk about some pretty deep and heavy things theologically, but he always gets to the therefore. You notice that? Paul always gets from theology to life. Good theology leads to life. It changes. It addresses uh, how we live, our priorities, our, our words, our behaviors, our relationships. And so Paul warns those who are involved in teaching not just to quarrel about words, because it doesn't do good. It only ruins the hearers. So he says, don't do this. Charge them before God not to do this. So very serious. That's one characteristic of a bad teacher, this tendency to focus just on, on words, not on the bigger picture, not on the truth. Now, again, studying the scripture, you may focus on just a word or two. That's not what he's talking about here. As long as you take that and apply it in light of the whole. Quarreling over words. Number two, uh, which sounds somewhat similar, uh, but a little different. Engaging in irreverent babble. Verses 16 and 17. Notice what he says. But avoid, again, we're going to skip verse 15. That's the good. Come back to it in a few minutes. Verse 16. Avoid irreverent babble. Uh, different ways that can be understood. Uh, profane, worldly, uh, secular, ungodly talk. Empty 
talk is the word that he uses there, to avoid this, to avoid these things. Now, Paul warns of this in other places. In fact, in 1 Timothy, he says in, in chapter 6, verse 20, something very similar. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. We've seen that in 2 Timothy as well. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. You know, there's a tendency uh, among some that he's, he's countering here. This, this tendency just to talk for talk's sake, to sort of appear pseudo-intellectual, uh, just to engage in discussions in a, in, a, in a secular or ungodly way, even discussions of theology that's designed to make you look smart or designed to defeat someone in an argument, these kinds of things. Now, certainly we want to know the truth. We want to be able to talk about it. But we also want to avoid what Paul is saying here. In 1 Timothy 1.7, he kind of gives a hint of what he might be getting at here. 1 Timothy 1.7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You know, there's nothing more annoying than dogmatic ignorance. And that's the kind of thing Paul seems to be getting at here. Um, this, this, this irreverent babble, and it, it also has its effects. It tends to lead people to progress in ungodliness. Instead of progressing in godliness, which is what good teaching should do, it seems to lead them to progress uh, toward ungodliness. Now, there may be a play on words, because the, 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 it may be that these people see themselves as the progressives, and Paul may pick up their word and say, yeah, they, they progress, they progress toward ungodliness. So does the teachings, does your discussions, does your reading, all of those things, does that tend to promote godliness or ungodliness? And he also says it spreads like a disease, like a bad fungus, you know, gangrene. In fact, that's the word Paul uses. The word gangrene comes from the word he uses, which can mean what we might think of as gangrene is just rot uh, or, or um, you know, spreading disease or something like cancer, um, but, but just death. Instead of living tissue, dying tissue that's cut off from the blood supply of, of good teaching. Um, unfortunately, there are churches uh, in large parts of entire denominations that seem to fall under Paul's condemnation here. Irreverent babble that leads people and confirms people and, and helps people grow in ungodliness and tends to just spread. Well, Paul says you have to avoid that. Be careful to avoid that. He actually uh, goes on to name some names there. But before he does, before if we look at that, I want to mention just an example uh, that I think kind of gets to what he's talking about here. This is in Acts 17. Acts chapter 17. Um, of course, you may know that chapter is the one where Paul uh, goes to Athens. Verse 16. Acts 17, verse 16. Uh, Paul is in Athens. He's waiting for uh, uh, Silas, Timothy, to join him. And he notices that the city's full of idols. It bothers him. It says he was provoked in his spirit. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
They were accusing Paul of being the one with the Bible. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. A theological, philosophical dilettante. They just want to know what the new buzz is. What's the latest ideas moving around? But it made no difference in their lives. They just wanted to gather and talk about it. Dear friends, we don't want our church to be that kind of place where we come and just discuss the newest ideas or the latest heresy or the latest teaching or the latest teacher and it doesn't make any difference in our lives the rest of the week or in our families or at home. That's what they did. They just, for the joy of intellectual stimulation, got together to discuss the latest ideas. But I think that falls under the category uh, of, of irreverent babble. There's another mark of bad teaching, not only quarreling over words that ruins the hearers, not only engaging irreverent babble that helps people progress in ungodliness, but also they swerve from the truth. Look at verse 17 again, uh, the second part of the verse. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Paul's not bashful about naming names here. He's dealing with false teachers. He knows Timothy's dealing with false teachers and wants to make sure that this is, is countered. Notice what he says about them, verse 18, who have swerved from the truth. The idea there is it, it misses the mark. It's like an arrow that's, that's bent, and you shoot it, and it just veers off because it's, it can't fly straight. They, they, in fact, the, the ESV does a good job with that verb. They've swerved from the truth. Instead of heading straight toward the truth, they veered off. They missed the target. And, because, and he gives an example of some of that. Some of them are saying the resurrection has already happened. That's just an example of how they miss the mark. No, it ha- Well, Jesus' resurrection has happened, yes. But the general re- resurrection of people has not happened. The resurrection of the believers has not happened. You know, Christ will come back. There will be a general resurrection of the godly and the ungodly, the godly to everlasting life, the ungodly to everlasting condemnation. Well, some were saying that's already happened. That's just one example of how they've missed the mark. And so he, he says because they do that, they're upsetting the faith of some. This is, this, they're disturbing people, bothering people, shaking their faith, leading them astray, causing them to think, well, you know, did the resurrection happen and I missed it? So this bad teaching does have an effect. So these are just some of the characteristics Paul mentions of bad teachers. They tend to argue about words. They tend to, uh, as he says, engage in, in irreverent or empty talk, irreverent babble, empty talk, and they tend to miss the truth. They, they teach wrong things. Now, there are Christians like that. There are Christians who tend to want to grab the latest bandwagon, the latest uh, church or theological idea, bandwagon that comes along just because it's new. It's been about 2,000 years since Jesus was here. 
And not that everything new is bad, but when someone comes up with a new theological idea, you got to wonder why they didn't come up, come up with it before, if it was a good one. And in fact, most bad theological ideas have already come up before, maybe under different names, maybe a little different slant, but the writer of Ecclesiastes is, is accurate. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, we need, at least in our theology, not be people who are immediately taken with the latest new thing to come along. The old paths are best. And uh, so we adhere to the old paths of the Word of God and the truth that it teaches and that the church has held that it has, teach, has taught over the years. Now let's get then to the good teaching, good teachers, verse 15. We've looked at the bad, and let's look at the good. What, what characterizes the good? Well, Verse 15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, we're going to look at those backwards because they tend to flow one after the other. We're going to work back from where Paul ends. A good teacher, he says, is someone who rightly handles the word of truth, of course, namely uh, the scriptures, the apostolic teaching, that apostolic the gospel deposit that God had given to Paul, and Paul is passing on to Timothy, and Timothy's passing on to others, that true and biblical apostolic succession, one of truth, not of men. But he says, rightly handling the word of truth. Of course, we, if you, if you and some of your younger ones maybe not, may not be familiar with this, anyone older would be, the King James translation, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, the word Paul uses has the idea of cutting, yes, but of, of, if you want to think of it in concrete terms, cutting a roadway. You know, a straight highway, straight roadway, clearing the trees, leveling the hills, raising the low areas to cut a good straight highway that gets you to the truth. Not the idea of division or dividing up so much as, as cutting a straight road. Or you might even think like uh, you know, if you're working cutting plywood or something, making a good straight cut. Now, the King James Version, rightly dividing the word of truth, is the basis, that translation, for example, for, for uh, Schofield. You, you know the Schofield Reference Bible and Schofield's uh, book, uh, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth, where he says that, uh, we need to understand how to divide up Scripture and what it teaches. Let me just give you a brief excerpt here of what he says. The word of truth, then, has right divisions. And it must be evident that as one cannot be a workman that needeth not to be ashamed without observing them, so any study of that word which ignores those divisions must be in large measure profitless and confusing. Many Christians freely confess that they find the study of the Bible weary work, more find it so who are ashamed to make the confession. He goes on then. Schofield um, says, explains these different distinctions in, in that book, including uh, distinctions between the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews as the people of God, the Gentiles as the church, which, by the way, is, is, is putting asunder what God has joined together. Jews, as, as Paul teaches in Ephesians, Jews and Gentiles together or in Christ make up one people of God through faith in, in Christ Jesus. There's only one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism that includes both Gentile believers and Jewish believers. So he's wrong on that point. But most famously, dividing the Bible up into the various dispensations where God is dealing with his people in different ways at different times. 
Well, that arose in the 1800s and has, has had huge effect on Christianity, particularly in the United States, not so much in other places, uh, because of the influence of the Schofield Reference Bible uh, and its, pro- its promotion and its notes of dispensationalism. Uh, this dividing up the Bible, chopping it apart. Now, are there divisions in Scripture? Yes. You look at the different covenants God makes, all under the covenant of grace. But it's not a hard break. It's uh, it's more of a transition into something bigger, something uh, grander, moving toward Christ and, of course, the new covenant grace in, in Christ. So what is Paul saying when he says rightly dividing the word of truth? Is he saying chopping it up? No. That the point is, it's a metaphor that simply, as the ESV translates it, has to do with rightly interpreting, rightly, accurately handling God's word, which is precisely what Schofield didn't do. He, he was inaccurate. Uh, he was just wrong on a lot of things that, that he, he came up with. So, ironically, in trying to rightly divide the word of truth, I believe, as many do, he wrongly divided the word of truth. Uh, he, he mishandled God's word. He got it wrong. What Paul is saying here is a good teacher is one who rightly handles the word of truth. In other words, teaches it accurately, as accurately as we can. Now, that, that takes diligent work. It takes diligent work to study, to read, to meditate, to compare Scripture with Scripture, uh, and certainly to check what you're coming up, against, uh, coming up with against what other knowledgeable and godly Bible scholars have come up with in, in Bible study books or in commentaries, whatever it might be, and to check yourself against them, maybe to see some things that they saw. So it takes diligent work. But if you do that, notice in the second place, the good teacher has no need to be ashamed. He says in the middle of verse 15, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Because they get it right, because they do it right, at least as far as human ability and our fallen condition will allow us to do it. I was reading, uh, I'm reading right now David McCulloch's biography of Truman, uh, uh, Harry Truman. And Truman was part of a, a Senate committee investigating production in World War II. Uh, and there were some, especially some grievous problems in, in production of steel, companies that had cut corners on the quality of steel. Back off uh, Portland, Oregon, they had a ship break in two uh, in 1942 or three uh, because of, of weak steel, basically almost the character of cast iron rather than a good steel. And so they would, they would, they would meet with the, the leaders and people involved with these uh, companies and talk to them. And some of them, yes, would acknowledge, well, you know, it wasn't quite up to the specifications that the uh, Navy had, had given for the steel. Well, they were ashamed. They, yes, yeah, we'll do it right. We'll make it right from now on, just trying to hasten production, you know. Well, they were ashamed. They'd been found out. They were caught because they were doing shoddy work. Well, that's what we don't want to do with God's word which is far more important than steel, uh, that we, as much as we can, get it right, that we teach it up to specifications, namely what it actually says, so that we're not ashamed before God uh, and we're accountable to him. God's the investigator. God's the one who's going to check our work, and we don't want to be ashamed, certainly not before people, but especially not before God. 
So a good worker does his best to rightly handle the word of truth, has no need to be ashamed, and therefore, because of that, because he doesn't want to be ashamed, makes every effort to present himself as approved. Verse 15, do your best. Make every effort. Strive. Those are all kind of senses of what Paul's saying there, the word he uses. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. The idea of the word there is one who has been tested and found to be genuine. It would be like steel that was tested and found that it was strong, that it was durable, that it was up to specifications. Tested and approved. Do your best. Work at it. Work hard at it. That's, that's what Paul's saying. A good teacher does that. Uh, even a good teacher can make mistakes. Uh, it's my, certainly my hope that by the end of the life, end of my life, I don't have to retract any, 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 any major teaching, any, any major doctrines that I've held and preached. And I would think that would be the same for you too. That we want to, as much as we possible, as much as is possible, get it right. Good teachers, bad teachers, the good, the bad. Well, Paul leaves us with a note of reassurance here. Comes back to the fact that ultimately, however, even though, as he says, the faith of some is being upset by false teachers, bad, bad teachers, we recognize the well-being of the church doesn't rest with us. And, and Paul concludes with verse 19. He says, but, even though the faith of some is being upset, and, and we don't want that, verse 19, but, he says, first of all, God will keep his own. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. God's firm foundation. The fact that it's God who, who, who elected the church, God who redeemed the church, God who drew the church to himself, God who will keep the church. A couple of seals on that foundation of God's sovereignty over the church and our salvation. First, points to the fact that God has hold of us. Verse uh, 19, the Lord knows those who are his, not just an awareness of them, but knowing them in the sense he's, he's established a relationship with them. Okay. Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. They follow me. Uh, they may get confused sometimes by bad teaching, but Jesus says no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. The Lord knows his own. But. That does not relieve us of responsibility to be diligent. And, he says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, these quotations seem to be taken from number 16, where Korah and those with him rebel against Moses. You know, why are you always in charge, Moses? And Moses puts it before the Lord, and the Lord's displeased with Korah and those who rebel. And... Um, He's going, you know, that's where he opens the ground up and they fall into the ground. But before that happens, Moses warns the people of Israel saying, depart please from the tents of these evil men. Touch nothing of theirs lest you be swept away with all their sins. It seems to be the source of what Paul's saying here. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Get away from it. And in this context, the iniquity, the sin, a bad teaching, and the bad living that results from bad teaching. You see, we want our theology right. We want our understanding of the Bible right. Not just so we have the satisfaction of being smug at those we think have missed it, but so that our lives are changed. It's extremely important. So we need to be careful that we teach, that we understand the Bible aright. Some of you have seen um, 
R.C. Sproul's video series done some years ago, actually it was geared toward high school students, called Choosing My Religion. And he talks about uh, the freedom that we have under our Constitution, uh, religious freedom. Uh, and we don't want to confuse that, however, that the government gives us freedom in religion to confuse that with the idea that somehow it's all good, it's all right. Or as Sproul put it in the video, the U.S. government gives you the right to be wrong. God never gives you the right to be wrong. We need to make sure we're not wrong. As best we're able in teaching and studying and understanding God's word, to make sure we've got it right, that we understand it right. Depart from the sin of wrong ideas about God and his word so that we depart from sin in our lives that result. The Lord knows those who are his, and he'll keep them, yes. But let us, who name the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity, the sin of wrong doctrine, the sin, therefore, of wrong life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. Certainly, Lord, um, I feel them and have felt them this week. You know that. Uh, But, Lord, we all do. We who teach, we who teach our children, uh, Lord, we who look for good teaching, uh, we who study the Bible ourselves, Lord, teach ourselves, who receive teaching from books on the Internet. Father, we pray uh, that we would be good in those things. Uh, Lord, ultimately, we look to you for your approval, not even to ourselves. But, Father, we pray that you would bless this church, bless our lives with good teaching, that we might be blessed with godly lives that flow from it and are strengthened by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.